Now to one of Australia's most esteemed writers who's penned a new work about the 50-year relationship between a mate of his, a Vietnam vet, and an isolated Indigenous clan in northeast Arnhem Land. The book provides a profound insight into Australia's deep history and it delves into the complexities of the meeting of two worlds, the coloniser and the colonised. The book's key character struggles not only uh, with the ancient culture and the demands of Western modernity, he's also trying to transcend the mental scars inflicted on the battlefields of Vietnam. This intense new book, The Passion of Private White, uh, is uh, the work of author Don Watson, formerly Paul Keating speechwriter and uh, author of the best-selling book, The Bush. Welcome. Thanks, Geraldine. I have to ask you, what was your drive to write this book? You said in the afterword it took years. It's a very, I think it's one of your most complex, if not the most book I've read. Yeah, it, it had its difficulties. It's hard to say when I started. I, I went there just because Neville White wanted me to see the place and um, I didn't really start taking serious notes until I was in my fourth or fifth trip, I suppose. And the, the book began to evolve, I, I suppose, in about 2010. But just going there, it was very hard not to get involved in the story of the place, not just the culture of this remote community and these clans, all of whom were mysterious to me. And, and the words, of course, I never would utter the words. I had no idea what how they looked on a page and the pronunciations were still way beyond me. But involved in the politics of day-to-day life there, of dealing with the bureaucracy or with the powers that be at, at various levels and the almost Soviet follies that went on. But, but you terrible. know, in a, yes... But it's so much more than an account of that sort of thing, which we've heard a lot of, I would suggest to you. It really brings out the difficulties of trying to straddle the two cultures, which I'll try to get to. But the character himself, Dr Neville White, a fascinating man. Could you tell us a little more about your history with him and this gritty character who developed? Yes, gritty describes him. I met him in 1968, the beginning of 1968. He'd come back from Vietnam in December. I'd been a year at the new University of La Trobe and he came in the second year. And I met him almost immediately. And because he was the son of a famous boxer, a boxing trainer who trained boxers that I idolised as a youth, Aboriginal boxers, I was very keen to make his acquaintance, I suppose. But we got on very well and we've remained friends ever since. He spoke very little about Vietnam in those days. He was edgy, always edgy, but he was a very good student and he won the university medal and he disappeared up into Arnhem Land to write his PhD. And I was writing mine in Canberra, I think, at the same time. I met him up again in about 2001, by which time a lot had happened. He'd gone from being the sort of participant observing anthropologist in this community to being a community builder. Mm. And he'd begun taking his fellow members of his old platoon up there and he was doing something quite extraordinary, slightly quixotic, I think, but he was uh, obsessive, I suppose. But at the time he he was recovering from melanoma, managed to make it through despite the doctor's predictions, and he also had been diagnosed with PTSD, as had most of his old platoon. Uh, he'd been lecturing at La Trobe one day and uh, suddenly he found himself back in the jungles. And 
this is the curious thing about the PTSD. All of us have moments that we keep in our heads, I suppose, and they never quite go away. But with PTSD, you're sort of trapped there. It's hard to move on, as we mm. say. But it took years to surface to that extent, didn't it? It did, yes. He was plucked out of Vietnam because his two years were up. One day, when he was on patrol, flown back to Australia and 48 hours from when he was in the jungle, he was back in his hometown of Geelong trying to make sense of everything. And this happened to all of them. It was terrible what was done to him. I mean, they, first of all, you have a, a conscription ballot and then you're just simply taken away and, 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 as you said, dispersed into the community. And I think that was part of the reason rage goes with the horrors that you feel that this, as one of the vets said to me, it was never meant to be my whole life, but it sort of became that and they couldn't step out of it. And they became a form of almost a little tribe of their own in the way they went up and helped him. Look, for nearly half a century, White exercises a sort of participant observation of the Yolnu people in Arnhem Land. And you do actually say that, you know, Neville had about him a bit of the anthropologist as hero, that Susan Sontag designation for people who, who really do go into this realm of anthropology and observe, observe, observe... Just tell us a little about the clan, please, around the area, because what he learns and the relationship, the complex relationship he develops with these people, please. There are really two clans, intermarrying clans, the Ratangu and the Wagalak, and the land belonged to the Ratangu uh, that they decided to settle on. I suppose I should say this. It was it only in 1970 or thereabouts that the two these two clans, the Rotungu and Wangalak, decided to form a homeland to stop their traditional seasonal movements across the country between the Arafura Swamp in the north and the Walker River in the south. No one else in Arnhem Land at that point was living the traditional life in the way they were. So they formed this community which creates has certain advantages but creates problems because it's not a sedentary culture. It's interlinked with the land. And one of the difficulties of the homeland was that Whenever there were squabbles among these 100 or 150 people, they would separate into bands and go in different directions and then come back together again and so on. The problem about being sedentary was that this wasn't possible unless you had a vehicle and then the arguments could be about a vehicle. So Donald Thompson, the great anthropologist in the 1930s, came across some of these bands when he walked through Arnhem Land. And he said there were probably only about 150 at best so it is a very small number of people. Mm. It was of interest to the anthropologists, particularly in the 1960s and 70s after Malinowski and Levi-Strauss had become sort of major intellectual forces in the world because they were people living lives, uh, living a kind of life which humanity for the most part has lived through all its 300,000 years or so or more. Well, I mean, there are so many fascinating observations you make. The death rate of particularly young men was particularly high, in the, but there was a great deal of um, warfare between the groups. You also talked on this amazing story of Neville asked to be a marvellous observer, to observe and record but not interfere, that's the whole point of, of anthropology, until he had one moment where he saw the effort by a, a woman and a man from the tribe to deal with bad teeth. 
at Donigi was the name of the actual settlement. Um, Yolnu had very poor teeth and just watching them trying to deal with this, he just couldn't bear it. Uh, with, you know, the woman trying to dig out the grub that had borrowed, uh, she felt had burrowed into her husband's tooth. He had to intervene. He gave them a course of antibiotics, which were in his shed. They recovered very fast. <laughs> and that sort of changed something, didn't it? Yes, that's right. Well, the teeth, of course, early people up there, white people up there commented on what wonderful teeth they had, of course, but the sugar hadn't arrived at that point. Mm. And now adults and they have beautiful teeth till they're 14 or 15 and then dental decay is one of the great problems. But he couldn't get any cooperation from the administration to treat. He wanted to take a whole dental team up there and go around and try and help them. They're in terrible pain a lot of the time and it's extremely bad for your health, as we know, to have a mouthful of rotten teeth. But yes, he, when this happened, he decided that he would no longer be the dispassionate observer. But he came to a kind of, well, a, a quite formal... It was a fork formal, in the road, wasn't it? Yeah, and he came, became quite a formal agreement. They gave him a bati, which is a sort of power bag, very rare for a white fellow to be given such a thing. The unspoken agreement was that he would help the community and they would help him. They would give him their knowledge, which they'd been doing anyway, but they would continue to give him their knowledge of the land and of the culture, and he would help them deal with the white world. Yes, he, but he was no longer a mere... wasn't just the observer. He, then, he was fully engaged. He was absolutely. fully engaged. And then that led, in circuitous ways, to a whole lot of other observations you make. And I'm going to read something here. Nothing so grieves a Ballander, the name they use for white people, especially perhaps a Ballander army veteran, as the casual anarchy and selfishness the philosophy that prevailed allows. A philosophy of life, a system of mental attitudes towards the conduct of life may not or may not be consistent with an actual way of life, wrote the great W.E.H. Stanner. It's true that the absence of authority in day-to-day life has made the Yolnus long struggle to maintain their culture and accommodate the European more difficult. When no one commands or admonishes and wrongs go unpunished, sullen resentment and frustrations periodically tip over into destructive, including self-destructive, rage and violence. You know, it's not easy to read that, but it's it's a frequent feature of life there. It's something that uh, Peter Sutton wrote about about 15 years ago in The Politics of Suffering where he said we have to face the fact that some of the dysfunction, including fatal dysfunction in Aboriginal communities, has to be sourced to where it really comes from. Not all of it. Colonisation is hugely destructive. But there are aspects of traditional Aboriginal culture which are not suited, you know, don't really fit with the white world. And some of the violence is inherent in that. I mean, to say that that violence was common in Aboriginal society is to say um, what can also be said about virtually every society that's ever existed. So it shouldn't cause too much. But not uh, urban society. I mean, that's what has been noted by other people, not just about Aboriginal societies, actually. You know, people sort of saying, don't be so grim about modern urban societies. They're actually much safer places to be than some of the more traditional um, uh, societies around the world. Oh, I think that's right. Of course, the person who documented this, um, Warner, an American anthropologist and sociologist, he became very famous when he went back to the United States for studying urban societies, Chicago in particular. But he he lived up there in the late 20s and wrote the first book called Black Civilization. And 
Warner, of course, had come from the battlefields of France, so he knew what slaughter was about. And I, I think the book he wrote is really quite remarkable. And like so much else, a great deal of this knowledge, what we know about traditional Aboriginal society, was gathered by these anthropologists. I mean, there's a, a quote, an example of Betty Meehan, a, another anthropologist who was up on the northern coast there at Manangrida, who said, or was it Mill and Gimby? I always get them confused. She, she was talking to an old man informant there who said, get it down quick, meaning this knowledge is fading and it needs to be preserved. So you make sure you get it down and get it down accurately. And Neville's informants were the same at Doingy. They'd say, you must remember this. This must be recorded. They wanted to give this information over because they knew that it wouldn't last into the next generations. Well, they were despondent about this. I was a bit despondent, I say, reading it, but I couldn't see any way out of it. No, well, it's going. it fades very quickly. I mean, the, the present generation there at Doingy now probably know less about the land than Neville knows because he walked it with the old men. Um, so they now ask him for information. He went over the entire land with his GPS mapping the song lines, making all these connections. The thing which is staggering, I mean, there is the business about feuds and so on, but the staggering thing about it is the incredible complexity and detail with which all this is known and the the way in which the songs retain so much of the physical landscape and the myths or the stories which make up the, the cosmos. So in the at the funeral of Tom, who was the, the last leader up there. I, I, they, sing, they sing songs about virtually everything. They sing songs about big things and little things, like a certain kind of fish, a certain kind of bird, a certain kind of plant and so on. I think if I was... The book, in some ways, I, what I was trying to do was to say, well, if you get on not just to the resistance on the frontier, which Henry Reynolds did so admirably in the 80s, but if you go further back and the other side of the frontier becomes incredibly interesting, you know, that, mm. and um, and we would do well to know more about it um, and it would help us to understand the problems that um, these communities now have. Doingy is a, is, a, is a safe and largely successful community in a, in a most remote and difficult place. It well, his plans, you know, Neville's very ambitious plans for schooling, for um, dental care, for the better bureaucracy, I mean, they don't really work, do they? No, they work, they work better than they work else, elsewhere. I mean, the, the place is still there. It'll always be a refuge. Um, it's, the houses are well made. There are still people living there. The numbers come and go. The school is still functioning and there are 20 or 25 kids in it. Last time I spoke to him, you know, it'll never be the equivalent of a Sydney suburb. It sits there as a sort of monument to their resilience and their determination to keep what they can of their culture alive and to continue their practices. Look, thank you very much indeed for assembling it over so many years and showing such commitment to it and to Neville himself. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Don Watson, The Passion of Private White. It's a Simon & Schuster publication. Well, look, thank you very much indeed for your company today and all your texts. My thanks to Sky Doherty, Belinda Summer, Isabel Summerson and Anne-Marie de Betancourt. Jonathan Green, up with you after the news with Blueprint. Bye-bye for this week. News time now. 
ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.